0: Father, I ask as we humble ourselves before the truths of your word that you would use it to speak into our lives. That, God, that we might be those who hear, who pay attention to what you say and put it into practice. Grant us that grace, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today I'm starting a... Something is kind of an annual thing here, the What the World's Coming To series. And this one is uh, probably going to last about 12 weeks. Um, And because I'm really going to try to focus on three key areas of transition in our culture, in our society, and in the world. What's happening with the family, what's happening with the church, and what's happening with our nation. There's this obscure passage in 2 Chronicles, that says, the men of Issachar were able to understand the times and to advise on what Israel should do. And my hope is that this series of messages will be of that kind. In the Old Testament, it talks about King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who was handed this great empire, and it collapsed around him because it said, when he became king, he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. And my prayer is that these things that we'll be sharing over the next several weeks will help to do that. There's three parts. There'll be four episodes, Lord willing. Of course, you know the old saying that if a pastor wakes up in the winter and sees his shadow, there's six more messages in the series. So, (laughs) So, I I don't make promises. I just kind of you what I think is going to happen. But this first message I want to begin with, I've entitled Foundations Matter, because one of the things we find is that the very foundations of our world are being shaken pretty dramatically. In fact, I was thinking about something that just before 2 a.m. on July 24th, 2021, there was a 12-story luxury condominium complex on the beach in Surfside, Florida. And it collapsed. The structure was a, basically filled with $3 million condos, not cheap. And it collapsed suddenly, killing 98 of the residents. And the question, of course, immediately is, why would something like this happen? How did a building that was designed to withstand a C5 category hurricane suddenly just crumbled to the ground for no observable cause. And the answer was that despite the fact that the supports of concrete and steel that had been pounded hundreds of feet into the ground, it was done so in sandy wetlands. The tower had been slowly crumbling for decades. And the amazing thing was that it was built on sand. Now, Just from reading Jesus' comments, we understand that builders have understood this problem for centuries, millennia, that if you have a faulty foundation, there will be structural failure. And it may not come all of a sudden, it may come incrementally until it comes all of a sudden. But you see, the bigger the structure, the greater collapse. And more importantly, it's not only true of buildings. But it's true of everything it's true of people it's true of families it's true of churches it's true of nations in fact as david warned in psalm 113 when he said if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do still we have to keep in mind that foundations never fall without warning there's always a thousand little signs cracks fissures As Solomon said, once he said, it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. We don't think about it, but it only takes one fox chewing on the grapes to ruin a whole vine. In a recent poll, it was found that 76% of Americans are pretty upset and unhappy with the state of their lives right now. I mean, as we listen to the news reports of the obvious widening cracks, in our foundation, nationally and culturally. We find crime and drugs, injustice, corruption, addiction, the cost of living, the first time in decades, the shortening of lifespan. People are not living as long. Our borders are overflowing with drugs and fentanyl and all sorts of interesting characters. And then on top of it all, if that wasn't enough, we have Chinese balloons. And I was puzzled when I was following the report that why it stopped over Montana. It avoided Olympia, it avoided Washington, D.C., and I realized it was seeking to gather intelligence. (laughs) Thank you, my wife didn't think that was that funny. (laughs) But you see, these reports sound increasingly apocalyptic. They sound like something that Jesus would have said. For example, in Luke 21, when he said, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. (laughs) I wonder if that includes UFOs or Chinese surveillance balloons. He said, on earth, nations will be in anguish and in perplexity and the roaring and the tossing of the sea. There are, in other words, hurricanes, cyclones, cold and hot cyclones. I didn't even know that was possible. Tornadoes and flooding. And of course, it is all unprecedented because we've never had flooding like this for five years. But then it says this, men will faint from terror. And not just faint the sense of dropping dead, when we look at the addiction problems and people turning to drugs and alcohol and other substances, or people committing suicide because they just can't handle the stress of life anymore. Because it says they're apprehensive of what the world is coming to. In fact, I love the way that King James used the term perplexity. Problems with perplexity. It means they are problems with no identifiable solutions. Yet, I think it's important for us to keep all of this in a greater context. Because all these are is merely symptoms. They're symptoms, they're cracks, but they are not the source of our problems. The problem is the very foundations have become faulty. And many of us have built our lives, at least in part, on faulty foundations. I was reflecting on this just a few minutes ago, and it came to my mind that the image that Daniel saw in chapter two, where there was this mighty, or excuse me, chapter um, four of Daniel, where he sees this mighty statue, and it's gold and silver and bronze and iron. And then it said, but it had feet of iron and clay. And I thought to myself, are we not becoming a nation that's kind of a combination of clay and iron? the strongest economy, the mightiest military in the world, and yet, at the same time, there's no real strength to who we become. You see, no matter how much political, military, and economic plaster you use to cover up the cracks or put on a new coat of paints, the cracks will just get bigger, and they will get deeper, and that's always what happens, and it will eventually give away. Ironically, prosperity has been our undoing. As our nation, even our churches and families have prospered, we've leveraged our future onto a foundation of philosophical mud. As John Glubb, in his seminal work, work, The Fate of Empires, discovered from his years of research on the rise and fall of great nations, made the following comment, summary comment of his observations. He said, The direction in which wealth injures a nation is a moral one. Money replaces honor as the objective of the best young men. Imperceptibly, it silences the voice of duty. The ambition of the young man is no longer fame, honor, or service, but cash. Students no longer attend college to acquire learning and virtue, but rather those qualifications which will enable them to grow rich. Indeed, the change might be summarized as being from service to selfishness. The nation no longer interested in glory or duty, only in retaining its wealth and its luxury. It's strikingly like the description that Paul gave of the society-wide sociopathic pathology that would mark the cultures, the society of the last days. He wrote to Timothy in the third chapter of his second letter, he said... In those days, he said, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They'll be boastful and proud and abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, And then finally he says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And yet he said they will have a form of godliness but deny its power. They'll have a form of godliness. They will be religious but they won't be dynamically spiritually. In fact, the New Living Translation rendered it this way. It says they will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. You see, mankind has always been troubled by pride and greed. It took me years to completely overcome those things. (laughs) Honey, please be quiet. (laughs) In some ages... And for short periods of time, the moral and the legal systems have been able to keep it to some degree in check. But when success and prosperity abound, we lose our grip on our better selves. Beliefs erode. Teachings diminish. Social mores are pushed aside. Laws begin to redefine. And even reject morality and replace it with a whole new kind of ethics and set of rules. Before long, we become that very people that Isaiah warned about when he said, they'll call evil good and they'll call good evil. They'll put darkness for light and light for darkness. They'll call bitter sweet and they'll call sweet things bitter. You see, it always begins with an intellectual or ideological shift. In our case, it was a move from theism, that is the idea that God is central, to humanism, which means man is central. In Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, Solomon said at the conclusion of his life search, He said he came to realize that the whole duty of man came down to this one thing, to fear God, to keep his commandments. And it's interesting that Paul warned in the end times, he said, there would be no fear of God before their eyes. That God becomes an irrelevancy. And so people don't concern themselves. What does God think about my life, my actions, my behaviors? In our modern history, and I hope this doesn't become too wonky for you, and for those of you who are real historians, I'm using a very broad brush, painting very broadly, so don't critique me too much. But it really began with the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Remember that? You probably didn't even watch the movie. But it'd be up to that time, Constantinople, the head of the Byzantine Empire, the, really the second, the Christianized version of, of the Roman Empire, was the bastion of Christianity in the Eastern world. There were more Christians in places like Syria and, and, uh, and uh, Iraq and, and the, uh, Egypt than there were in Europe but they were overthrown in the height of their wealth and prosperity and power by the the Muslims. And as Christians fled to Europe, they carried a trove of ancient documents. Many of them became central to the text of our New and Old Testament translations today. But they brought with them not only biblical literature, but also secular literature. It introduced into the European intellectual world a whole set of documents that was new to them with ideas from people like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Pythagoras and on and on it went. And they began to realize that there are these ancient writings that are different from the Bible. In fact, they kind of say something completely different about the reality of the world than the Bible describes it. And suddenly, very subtly, I shouldn't say subtly, but very subtly, what happened was a shift in the intellectualism of Western and Eastern Europe. They went from kind of a curiosity about these new things to really beginning to question the very foundations of their own intellect. The Bible's view of the world is pretty straightforward, that God's, the world is God's oyster, if I can put it like that, that he created it, he designed it, He ordered it, he structured it, he controls it, that it exists by God and exists for God. But with this influx of new information, we had the dawning of what was called the Renaissance. And basically the Renaissance was a slow shift from God at the center of all things to following the ancient Greek view expressed by Protagoras in the fifth century before Christ. Of all things, he said, man is the center. Now, don't lose that. Don't let that slip away too quickly. A shift from God is the center to man is the center. That's a huge intellectual shift that happened very subtly, very slowly, but eventually became almost all-encompassing. What this ended up leading to in the 17th, 18th, 19th century was called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was based upon the idea that we're smarter than ancient people. I love Lewis referred to it as our chronological arrogance. We think that we're smarter than ancient people because they're ancient people. (laughs) And they're not here to prove how unsmart we actually are. But the Enlightenment began to question the very foundations. And it's interesting, where it started was in the theological seminaries of Germany. Which was considered to be one of the intellectually high points of the world at that time. And these theologians began to become questioned and saying, well, how do we know that the Bible is true? How can we rely upon these texts? You see, they didn't have the advantage of things like the textual information we have today, and so basically they argued from the position of silence because what you often find in intellectualism is that rationalism is set aside, or excuse me, reason is set aside in order to rationalize what we want to do that reason becomes put aside, that logic no longer becomes the prevailing way we make decisions, but rather, instead of logic, we just simply follow our likes, the way I want it to be. And so this gave birth to a whole new movement called humanism. The sentient sentiment of humanism was really best captured, I think, by the 19th century poet, Ernest Hensley, who simply said at the end of his poem Invictus, if you've never read it, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. And then he died. You see, from a human perspective, that often seems to be true. I mean, basically, you've got to be responsible, you've got to take, (coughs) you know, things under your care and you've got to do things. You know, your body won't wash itself. You need to step in the shower. We kind of understand those kind of things. I've always wanted to buy a car that would wash itself. I've not found one yet. There's something that has to be done. There's, there's responsibility. In fact, even in terms of prayer, I've come up with a whole new term. I call it being prayer active. That we're not proactive. We're prayer active. We pray, but yet the idea we have is that we just need to be proactive. We don't need to really pray because I'm the master of my fate. And yet scripture repeatedly says something quite different, doesn't it? I was thinking about the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 when God miraculously gives her a child and she declares, no one is like the Lord for there's none besides you nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, she said. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed, not words. He brings low and he lifts up. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. And he has set the world upon them. And he will guard the feet of his saints. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. You see, the Bible is very, very clear. God is the ultimate decider about my life. And this was the prevailing view in America until humanism became wedded to something called scientism. Not to be confused with science. Scientism is a religious philosophy. You see, in the 20th century, what humanism did is moved from the ivory towers of empiricism, in other words, looking at facts and trying to understand the realities around us, into kind of a free-floating speculation that rationalizes our hedonism. You know what hedonism is? It's the idea that if it feels good, you do it. That pleasure becomes your guiding mantra. The faulty conclusions were supported by Things like Darwin's, uh, Darwin's assumptions that were decided as settled science, even though any honest scientist will tell you that Darwin got it wrong on almost every point. But his idea had prevailed, and that's the problem. Ideas which can be wrong and unsubstantiatable can somehow survive and carry on and become part of the belief system the fabric of our decision-making grid. We found that the sexual fantasies of Sigmund Freud became the science of the mind. The spirituality of Jung, promulgated by doctrines of demons, suddenly made his rabid speculations dignified and educated. And generations of hucksters like Kinsey and Masters and Johnson and Spock and Adler all became the modern gurus of the psychotherapeutic movement. But what really changed for you and me is that personal happiness replaced piety in heaven as the ultimate goal. So much so that I suspect that my even choosing the word piety is uncomfortable to most of our ears. There's something wrong with being pious, but that's only a modern perspective. Historically, the church has desired to be pious. It means that you're humbly submitting yourself to the lordship and the mastery of God. So that piety has lost favor and heaven is no longer the goal. Now the goal is my personal happiness. But what has it done for us? Rather than simplifying life, our life has become mystifying. And the answer is very simple. We're caught between trying to serve two masters There's a double-mindedness in our way of looking at everything. We we want what we want, and we also want what God wants, and we can't decide which one is going to prevail from situation to situation. So we live, rather than with a biblical ethic, we live with a situational ethic. In the end, what this has done, as Stephen Turner so well understood in his, his great poem called Creed... It has led us to nonsense. Bear with me as I I read this poem. It's one of my favorite. And I think it's probably one of the most exact diagnosis of the problems of our time. He says, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe that everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone. To the best of your definition of hurt, and the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything gets better despite evidence to the contrary but the evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, bent spoons. We believe Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think some of his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one we've read. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on small matters like creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. Other than that, they're exactly the same. We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when we ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. And if death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all except for Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What is average is normal. What's normal is good, no matter how abnormal. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. And this is the fault of society, and society is the fault of conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. But it's this last phrase, I think, that encapsulates it. You can follow it on the screen. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, except the truth that there is no absolute truth. And most of all, we believe in the rejection of creeds. In other words, we're told that to believe anything and to be certain about anything, and to be absolutist about anything, is automatically proves that you're a wrong, you're a bigot. In fact, the term they like to use so often is you're being racist. Yet humanism and its spawn, which is hedonism, that's what humanism really did. It it gave permission to people to pursue their most purient desires and passions. Hasn't led people to happiness. In fact, it's done just the opposite. But here's the important thing I would say, that the humanists don't believe it's their fault. It's yours. As evidenced by the annual Winter meetings that take place in Davos, Switzerland every year at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. What a misleading name. They often offer us plans and pronouncements. As they dine on foie gras and pork bellies, they tell us that we should start eating cricket dust. Seriously. That's, we should replace protein with crickets. This gathering of, excuse my judgment, sociopaths and their sycophants, (laughs) I'm going to prove that claim in a minute here. That they believe that the ultimate problem is nation states. That, in other words, the social and economic inequity that are created by nation states, especially the ones that are successful, like the United States, are really the problem and have to be undone. They very openly have stated that their goals for the 20th century is the end of America. I mean, they're not hiding it at all. They come right out and say it in plain black and white. They say they call for an end of personal property. Then in the future, they said, you will own nothing. You'll just rent everything. Well, I kind of think we're halfway there already. But it goes on and on. I I just don't have time to go into the detail. But their proposal is the ends of nations, which is really why our borders are wide open. Because the current administration is in lockstep with the philosophies of the World Economic Forum which was proven by the fact of how many of our State Department and, and White House people showed up at this latest forum and have been regular attendees. Even our FBI director was there lecturing. Hmm. But basically they have a goal that they're very clearly stating. It's one world of global government which controls the economy, and replaces all other religions with what they call techno-religion. I'll explain, let, in fact, I'll let them explain in depth what techno-religion is. There's a guy by the name of Yuval Noah Harari. Strange name, he's a Jewish-Israeli. Um, he has a couple of doctorates, one from Hebrew University, another uh, from uh, Jesus College in Oxford, interesting. But he is the most ardent and vocal proponent of humanism, as well as the right-hand man of the founder and president of the World Economic Forum, a guy by the name of Klaus Schwab. He is the principal brain trust and the architect of the Great Reset, the Build Back Better, and it's interesting in interviews how he's explained his perspective on The world that you and I live in, and where the future lies. I quote For thousands of years, humans believed that authority came from the gods. Then, during the modern era, humanism gradually shifted authority from deities to people. Everything that was promised by religions, happiness, justice, and even eternal life, will be experienced here, with the help of technology, and not after life. I believe that the future belongs to the technological religions. Technology will one day help people forget the real world, and will be used as a vehicle for people to transform into different kinds of human beings. In the future, it will be very easy for a person to change gender, or even create a new gender. We see it with avatars. In other words, that's something we'll talk about, how there are actually some churches that are going completely online, and you can pick your avatar to go to church for you and join your home group online. And of course, you can make him thinner and better looking than you are right now. This artificial interaction, I mean, anyway, it's pretty spooky, but we'll, have, we'll get into that in the future. But he goes on to say in 30 to 40 years, there will be a 3D life that will be more exciting than this life in the real world with an economy that they will no longer need. You won't need to work. You won't need a job. You won't need an economy. In such a case, I do not believe that the sexes as we know them now and for thousands of years will remain the same. Now, I don't know if the fact that he is gay has any influence on how he views that. I'm just guessing. But in the meantime, he goes on to explain, we should keep people happy with drugs and computer games. And then he goes on because he said, we just don't need the vast majority of the population. The future is about developing more and more sophisticated technology like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. Most people don't contribute anything to that. These technologies increasingly will make people redundant. It will make it possible to replace people. In fact, he says that basically we already have 4 billion too many people and we need to pare that down. Now unless you think this guy is some kind of whack job, which he may be, I would go with demon possessed or something like that, but whether you just think he's crazy, you have to notice who's listening to him. As I said just three weeks ago, nearly 3,000 of the wealthiest and most powerful, influential people in the world gathered in Davos to listen to lectures and to sit into workshops and discussions about how, as Klaus Schwab says, we can plan for a better world. A better world and a brave new world that's controlled and run by them. They included heads of states of every major industrialized and technologically advanced country in the world. 27 U.S. senators, congressmen, State Department officials, White House officials, some of the closest advisors, Samantha Powers was there as well, along with FBI Director Christopher Wray. Conspicuously missing was Donald Trump. Um, must have been oversight. But every international banking financial concern in the world, the big ones, the ones that control the world economy, they were all there participating as well. We talk about later on about things like ESG and where that whole idea that you can't borrow money unless you're environmentally sensitive and so forth, is coming out of this. These is where these ideas are coming from. Almost every major global corporation, whether you're talking about mobile oil or technologies, Apple, Amazon, Google, are all there. Every media organization is there. And they even had some formerly important persons like Al Gore and Tony Blair, still trying to matter. Well, unfortunately my time is just about expired and I wanna continue in this next week because there's so much more to say. So I only close with a comment, a scripture, and a question. First, it is the traditional family, according to the Bible, that is the foundation upon which civilized society is built. And we'll dig into that deeper as we go on. I, I will give you the research that validates that fact. Even President Obama admitted that when he was in office. But they are also the primary target of people who want a brave new world. The family has to be changed. And so when you hear about all the transgenderism and all this other stuff, the flourishing of homosexuality and on and on, you have to understand that it's not just simply people discovering their true identity or sexuality. There is a very concerted effort to redefine, as Black Lives Matter said, the nuclear family. A decimating of the nuclear family. Because if you can do that, then you can reorder society any way you want, as China has illustrated so bountifully. And so, if you are a Christian, you should be committed to the Bible's definition of what a family is, to the Bible's definition of what sexuality is. You know, sex is non-negotiable in the real world. It only becomes an object of discussion in the fantasies of those who want to be able to do whatever they want secondly, I think we need to remember what David said in Psalm 33, and I just read excerpts from it, because I didn't think you would follow the whole thing. But David said, "For the word of the Lord is right." You know, we have to be four-square on that, friends. We have to come to a conclusion that we're going to believe it's true and follow it or not. Because Jesus said, if you're lukewarm, if you're caught between two opinions, you know, you're really not good for anything except mumbling. He goes on, he says, all his works are done in truth. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And let all the earth fear the Lord. In other words, it's his world and his rules, not yours. But here's the hopeful part. when in verse 18, David says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations, and I would include the world economic forum, to nothing. He makes their plans of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart are for all generations. And blessed is the nation whose God is The Lord. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy. He is our help; He is our shield. So we need to be stop running scared. We need to stop living in fear. Of the future. We need to be prayer active every day. Lastly, my question, what is the foundation that your life is built upon? I mean, has your life, Christian, become an admixture of iron and clay? I believe this about what God says, but I don't know about that part and and I, I, I know that God should control this, but I, I don't want to let go control of this part of my life. And most of us struggle with that. And it's understandable. It doesn't make you weird or abnormal. Especially when we live in a world where we are flooded with disinformation. What we have to really begin to say is, God, is my life built upon you and the truth of your word. You see, Christian, if you don't read the Bible, you won't know the Bible. You won't know the Bible by coming to listening to me or anybody else like me. If you don't read the Bible for yourself, you will not know the Bible. And if you, will not know, if you don't know the Bible, you will not live like the Bible says you should. It's that simple formulation. And the danger is, in our technological age, our digitized age, that we start allowing AI to process our information. We live in the soundbite world of little snippets on Instagram that say, have a happy day. God's going to bring all your dreams to pass. And I read this nonsense. It's like, part truth, but not all truth. And for many people, that's the whole sum of their devotional and spiritual life. I love little booklets like the Daily Bread, but if I was just living on that, I would starve. Because it's really kind of white bread. It doesn't have much in it. We need to be people who are committing to reading his word so that we can know his word, so we can become better at living his word and telling people accurately what his word says. God loves you so much that he became a man and allowed the very people he loves to kill him so that his death Would replace yours. Because you are a sinner who will go to hell for eternity if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There's the gospel. And yet, what do we hear? God loves you. He just loves you, brother. Just loves you the way you are. He does. I have people in my life, I've had them over the years, who I love desperately. And they killed themselves with drugs, despite all the warnings and the encouragement and the rehab and the thousands spent on efforts to bring, bring the free from it. Did we love them? Absolutely. But we couldn't change their choices. God loves us, but he looks at our choices and the actions that come from him. And ultimately, that's what we're judged by. Unless we throw ourselves at the mercy of God and ask for his grace, his forgiveness. Unless we're born again. I love the words of Isaiah to a very troubled Judah. When he said, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and you are mine. If you know Jesus, then don't be afraid. He has redeemed you, and you belong to him. You're his. And if that's not true of you, then you need to surrender your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to hear your voice over mine. That in the end, God, unless we hear from you in our own hearts and our own minds, unless the compelling of your Holy Spirit is pressing in upon our souls, things like this time this morning will just be a passing event some will say, oh, that was interesting, or I agree, or I disagree, or I like, or I disagree. But God, we need your Holy Spirit to just impress upon us the truths of your word to our hearts so that they impact us in a transformational way. We ask this of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.